Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. All right, this episode is part of a collaboration with Dr. Scott Weingart, who heads the amazing group at MCRIT. Now, if you work in the world of emergency medicine, you probably already know Dr. Weingart and the MCRIT crew. But if you don't, you can find them at mcrit.org. That's E-M-C-R-I-T dot org. As a way of brief introduction, Scott is an emergency doc and intensivist from New York and an absolutely world-renowned educator. It's not at all an exaggeration to say he's one of the most important voices in emergency medicine education. Scott's goal, as he states it, is to bring upstairs care downstairs. In other words, to bring ICU-level care into the emergency department so that our patients can receive optimum treatment from the moment they roll through the door. So what we're doing here in this collaboration is talking about individual and team-level factors that deliver performance under pressure. Roughly speaking, Scott is going to talk about how to train individuals so they can excel under pressure no matter what team they're on, and I'm going to talk about how to build teams that excel under pressure across all sorts of individual operators. It's not so much a debate as it is a synergistic approach to a really complicated and worthwhile topic, so there is a ton to learn from both positions. What we have here on the Emergency Mind podcast is me interviewing Scott, and this is really part two of the conversation. You can certainly listen to it on its own, but I'd highly recommend digging into this episode only after you've listened to the first part, which is Scott interviewing me. You can find that on mcrit.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, before we get started with this part two, a quick reminder, if you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to try the free crisis skills test, which you can find at emergencymind.com. All right, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode with Dr. Scott Weingart. I hope you enjoy. All right, Scott, welcome to this side of the fence. We're, we're switching gears here. We just did this amazing conversation on your side of the world about team performance, right? Thinking about how do you design a structure of a team that functions well, no matter what people you put on it, and that really allows you for that team to deliver the best possible care that it can. And now we're going to switch gears and take really the opposite approach, which is what do we know about individuals performing under pressure? How do we select them? How do we design them? How do we empower them? And how do they really push the boundaries forward of what's happening? So I guess I'll take one step back and start with a thank you again and say thank you for coming on this podcast. Such a pleasure. Uh, delighted to have you on board. No, no, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, this had to happen. And now that we've had the first part of the conversation, I know this second part is going to be absolutely oh. amazing. I am fairly certain that anybody listening to this is going to know who you are, but we have a really interesting audience group and a lot of folks are not in medicine and maybe they haven't come across what you're up to. Can you give folks a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm an emergency intensivist. And I'm also a physician coach. And in that former role, I've run ED critical care units for the past, I don't know, 19 years, places where only the sickest patients will come right off the ambulance. And the setting of that, we basically had a lab for learning, but we didn't really have an outlet. And so the MCRIT podcast was born from that, a desire to take all the lessons we had learned, taking care of the most sick patients in medicine during their most unstable time and uh, trying to get that out there to the world. Mm. Trying very successfully to get that out there to the world at ad, right? Like Thank myself you. in a wide variety of other ER doctors are very, very influenced by what your folks at MCRIT have put out. So thank you for that and for what you're doing. 
I actually didn't know that that's why you started it. And I think that's really cool and, and maybe actually a great place to wedge into some of this, right? That that desire to learn from the stuff you're experiencing and experimenting with and really take that out there. Tell me about that. What was that like? Well, you as a podcaster know how it, it is ultimately selfish because yes, you're putting out education to the world, but what you're really getting back is the opinions and ideas from you know the people that are doing it at the highest level and you would never have that opportunity so while you're giving a small amount to the world and i loved where emcrit has you know been able to help people and i get emails and saying you know uh, because of what i learned i was able to save a life i mean and that's fantastic mm -hmm. but the real yeah. payback is to hear people disagree with your ideas and tell you <laughs> where your thinking was wrong and actually allow you to improve on a continuous basis in a venue where, you know, ordinarily it's, you're just exposed to, you know, the 20 people around you in your individual hospital. And that's amazing. You know, I love my colleagues, but to have, you know, all the people in the world that I'd most like to have a conversation with reacting to the things I put out there and telling me where there's been flaws in my ideas, it's just the best opportunity in the world. It is an incredible accelerant on learning, right? For sure. Like you're really able to harness the the viewpoints of all these other folks and all the problem sets that they're hitting, which is maybe a great wedge into, you know, one of the big questions we have is how do you build people? How do you train people that are capable of performing at the absolute edge of their abilities into these moments? And you said something before we were starting this wave of it, which is that your goal is to produce folks that can perform optimally no matter what circumstances they find themselves in. That is the absolute core tenet of MCRIT. And what I discovered early on in my career when I was a trainee is that there was a real reliance on the various components of a resuscitation team. And when the right players came, things worked out really well. Mm -hmm. And if one link was weak, for instance, you had a respiratory therapist that might've been just out of school and wasn't experienced with dealing with the unique circumstances of a resuscitation, then performance flagged. Mm -hmm. And that was the structure. I thought that was not ideal. Uh, MCRIT came from the idea that I wanted the people I trained in emergency critical care to be able to go to a community hospital that had never done high-level resuscitation and be able to bring a level of performance that exceeded anything that hospital could produce by their presence. And what that required is a knowledge of how to do anything you might be exposed to on your own. And you became agnostic of the team. Now, it doesn't mean if a team was there, you wouldn't utilize them and work with them to provide great performance, but it would require that either what was being asked of them was so routine that anyone could provide it, or you knew the people involved and therefore knew their capabilities and therefore could shed some of the roles. But in an ideal circumstance, you could take someone trained in the framework of MCRIT and put them in a situation with people that had just graduated from whatever respective roles they were in and still provide near optimal performance because you could run the ventilator yourself. You knew how to manage the drip pumps. You knew how to mix the medications. And this was very different than anything I'd seen out there before, Dan. Very different, but also incredibly real, right? And you know, if you don't come at this from an emergency mind background or emergency um, medicine background, this might be a little bit hard to understand. But it's very reasonable to graduate from an emergency medicine residency 
go out to a place and be solo coverage, be the only doctor in the hospital, not just in the ER, but in the entire hospital, and all of a sudden realize, okay, you were out in the wilderness, usually like literally, but sometimes even figuratively, like out in the wilderness by yourself, and you don't have a team around you to really rely on. And you have to sort of assemble the folks around you and teach them as you go and, and build a functioning unit. Not only is this theoretically possible, like this is, you know, like part of the environment that I found myself in pretty close to graduation and I've worked in a, a number of times. Like this is real to be able to go out on your own and try to make a difference like this. Yeah. And it creates some degree of animosity when you speak about it as a philosophy because there's so many people in our specialty, like our simulation friends. You know, I try to have this conversation of the need for individual mastery of everything around you. And what I get back is, well, you're ignoring all the beauty and benefits of a team. You know, the sim folks are so high on evolved teamwork as the only path for success in emergency medicine. And I want to, you know, make clear, no, I, I love working in a team. And I especially love working in a team that I've cross-trained with and we've developed a knowledge of what each role really their jobs and ways of doing things. And yes, I think it could be fantastic, but I don't think it's fair for the patient to rely on that, you know, perfect alignment of the stars. Uh, you know, I know I speak to doctors that have been doing this for a while and I tell them you need to learn how to use the ventilator because sometimes respiratory won't show up for 45 minutes. For sure. And and they're like, no, that's not my job. When I hear those are the words that piss me off most in medicine, Dan, from, from every stance. You know, when my residents tell the nurses they can't help them clean up the patient that soiled their own bed, that's not my job. I'm like, you damn well better believe that's your job. You yeah. go and help. But by the same token, anything that is mission critical is your job. Mm -hmm. And and it's it it's not just the doctors. You know, when I'm creating a resus cadre at a, a new unit, I want the nurses to know exactly what the docs are doing as well for a few reasons. One, they can anticipate and you know it becomes nonverbal what's going to happen next, but also because when there's a doc that's not fulfilling the role on the team, when you have a physician that probably shouldn't be resuscitating, those nurses could bridge that gap and actually say, hey, you know, some of the other doctors I've seen have done X at this point in time. Would you consider that? And they've basically saved the patient's life through the application of the knowledge they got by cross-training. And right. so it, you know, it works, it swings both ways. Yeah. And that's a really interesting wedge in it, right? Because you're talking about individual level performance and the stuff that a human being needs to do in a role to accomplish that role. And at the same time, you're saying part of that job is to teach the people around you and elevate everybody else around you, that you are forming the team no matter where you go, right? And I a thousand percent believe that. And I I preach that so much, I think my residents are sick of hearing it, right? That your job is not just to do your work, but also to make the universe around you better and more capable of doing that work tomorrow, whether or not you're the one there at that moment. I think that's a really important vision for who we are and what we do. I actually don't know if this is true. I was about to say it's also pretty unique within medicine to the world of emergency medicine, but I'm not actually sure that that's true. Yeah. I've seen it the same way in intensive care, though that the beauty of intensive care is it exceeds the capability of just a doctor to do everything. It really cannot be done. Uh, I've trust me, I've tried. In that specialty, you need the ICU nurse 
you need them. You rely on them. It, it can't be you doing it all alone. And the patient will live or die by that ICU nurse. In fact, I almost think it still applies, but it's it's at the different role. The ICU nurse could be the one that really has gained mastery and knows what needs to be done at the for the doctor to be the part of the team that uh, may not suffice. So maybe maybe my theory still holds in intensive care. It's just the different person who has to embrace that because I think for some period of time, a masterful ICU nurse could make up for a complete lack of the rest of the team. While sure. in emergency medicine, a doctor could get the job done. Now, my nurses are amazing and uh, especially our resource cadre. And so I don't have to be self-reliant, but uh-huh. I can be. And you know, if there was a nursing strike, we could still take care of those patients. And that's how it has to be. You know, and there's sort of a there's sort of an angle here into this idea of Rich Divini of uh, peak versus optimal performance, right? With peak performance being like what Olympians have, you know, you micro control every paint fiber that's on every piece of your uniform in order to decrease wind drag and you control every single variable perfectly to achieve the highlight of human performance versus optimal performance, which is you do the absolute best you can with the situation you find yourself in. Right. And you're sort of speaking about the edge of those things, right? You you want to train people in your vision to be elite level optimal performers. You're reading it so perfectly and you, you really have a gift for um, encapsulating an idea into a really nice verbiage. So yes. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So let's play that out. Okay. So if you're trying to design a person who is able to perform at elite level optimal performance, what does that look like? How do you do that? How do you think about that? And obviously we're going to use an emergency slash intensivist person as our model here. But along the way, we're going to sort of strike laterally to that because I think it's not just about that. I think we're getting at what are probably meta-level truths about how humans can perform at their outer limits. Yeah. So I guess the next foundational part of MCRIT that speaks to what you're asking now is a military tenet of amateurs speak strategy, experts speak logistics. And this was another you know, formative idea for MCRIT, the idea that you ask people, okay, well, you have a patient who's massively hemorrhaging from uh, esophageal varices. What are you going to do? And everyone in emergency medicine who's you know spent even you know three months in the field will say, okay, well, first I'll resuscitate with blood products and maybe I'll intubate the patient and I'll give this set of medications. And then if they're still bleeding, I'm going to place a Blakemore tube. This is a tube we place down into the stomach and esophagus and you actually inflate two great big balloons to try to, by direct pressure, stop that bleeding, mm-hmm. right? And it's one of these procedures that are performed very infrequently. You might do two of them in a career and they'll say, that's what I do. And I'm like, fantastic. Walk me through how you're going to make that happen. Walk me through the logistics of actually doing that. And then you're like, oh, well, I guess I'd go and find the Blakemore. Okay, well, where? (laughs) Then, you know, what you quickly realize because medicine, you know, designs things horribly is having that doesn't even help you. There's so many other auxiliary components to make that actually utile. And then you have to have the capability of doing it, which most people, when you're like, all right, just walk me through. You know, I'll do this with the residents all the time. It drives them crazy. Just, all right, walk me through mentally how you're actually going to put that Blakemore in. Walk me through the steps and and what you're going to do at each. And, you know, that's when you quickly realize strategy is great. We all have the strategies, right? You know, but to actually make things happen requires a level of uh, true 
concrete knowledge that most people don't endeavor to train in. And then when it actually has to happen, it goes horribly awry. And, uh, you know, I could just reel off, you know, 15 of these scenarios where things that are even more common that you're doing it on an everyday basis is consistently as if reinventing the wheel. There's an ad hoc nature to it that drives me insane. You know, one of the core things we do in emergency medicine that you talk about all the time, Dan, is simply putting in a breathing tube. And if you ever get to observe as a third party how this happens in a lot of emergency medicine, it's absolutely, you know, it's ridiculous that something life-saving is being performed at a level of, oh, well, I guess, you know, we'll just find the stuff and we'll gather it all together. And like, there's no pre-planning, there's no standardization, there's no capability of reflecting on success and whether there's the ability to optimize. And all of those things come down to the statement of amateurs talk strategy, experts talk logistics. First off, hell yes. Like, strongly agree. And like, I think there's so much depth in there about like all of the, to go back to what you talked about in the first half of this episode, all of the individual team and structural components of making something like that work correctly. Right. We're going to try to stay in the sandbox of the individual for the moment. So knowing that that's true, that amateurs talk strategy and experts talk logistics, what do we do with that other than note it? Because I think that's an important starting point right off the bat. Like if you're not doing that, you're probably doing it wrong. Absolutely. So we talk about training as if someone has to externally give it to us. Oh, why aren't we doing in situ sims? Why are we not having more training sessions? But it also comes purely from the individual. You don't need anyone else. You know, you could actually do this all yourself. And it comes down to a, a logistical check-in. Uh, here are the things I need to do in emergency medicine that may slightly diverge from standard or may be really critical to be done in a time-dependent fashion. All right, let me mentally walk through how I'm going to get those done and where are the stumbling blocks? Where are the potential for on any individual day, this might work and it might not. You know, I, I find out that things are stocked very haphazardly in the ED I'm at, and I don't have the aegis to make those changes at a, at a institutional level to get that change. Sure. All right, well, what am I going to do to fix that? Well, maybe now I have to have my own little stash of equipment to know that it will, the things I need will always be there. I have my own cricothyrotomy set up so that I never have to worry about finding the 11 blade on the day that they just forgot to stock blades in the entire ED. Um, or, you know, by that same token, if we continue with that example, okay, they didn't stock blades. So where am I going to go to get one? And then you realize, okay, well, every single central line kit in the hospital, whether it's on a floor or not, is going to have the scalpel I need to perform this life-saving procedure. So now I've built into my routine where I'm going to go if there's a, a failure mode. If something has not gone, I've had plan B, plan C, and I've logistically planned that out before things actually happen. Um, and that's the key, is everything that is mission critical, you should have a mental stimulation and envisioning, and then throw in the monkey wrenches, throw in the hazards that are going to send you astray, and then ask yourself again before it's actual in front of a patient, how am I going to solve this? What are my degrees of failure? Another thing we talk about on MCRIT is what makes an expert is not how well you perform. You know, that's great. Everyone gets that. That's a, a gimme. Most people are performing at a high level. And, you know, the expert will perform higher than the amateur, but that's not the real win. The real win of an expert is degrees of failure. Not only are they performing at a high level, but they actually have the ability to fail gracefully at point B, point C, point D. And they've already thought out, here's what I'm going to do when my initial mode of action does not 
hit success. And that's the mark of a true expert is not performance per se, but degrees of failure. We talk all the time in the Emergency Mind Project about application of knowledge under pressure. And one of the things I love about what you're saying is that experts, like they might apply the same knowledge, but where they're able to apply it is such a broader space, right? Because they can find other ways to apply that knowledge under pressure. You see that all the time in jujitsu as well, right? The arm bar looks pretty, like it's different, but at some level it looks the same, whether it's, you know, person A or person B applying it. But the paths to that space are so much wider and so much more diverse if you understand the game at a deeper level than at a superficial level. And that is certainly part of mastery in there. Um, Absolutely. I, I love this idea of what you're saying about the importance of challenging yourself and thinking ahead of yourself about, okay, here's my game plan. Here's my alternates. If you had multiple people doing that, you'd be thinking about that as sort of a red team style environment where you're creating a, a purposeful antagonist to challenge you back and forth about it. And certainly you can do that if you have two folks that are roughly at the same level, they can provide those challenges to each other. But are you, for an individual, is this the Klein-Kahneman pre-mortem that we're talking about? Or is this like a, a, a deeper, broader implication of some of those ideas? Yeah. I, I love the idea of pre-mortem. How am I going to fail? And it's just, I think it's also a philosophical mindset. It's the idea that you have to be proactive. And, you know, we, we could see this also in emergency medicine procedures. For most of emergency medicine, they have received whatever training they've gotten in the course of their residency. And then their performance improvement is just doing that procedure however often it comes up. And that, you know, that's one stance. And that's a very reactive stance. The proactive stance is to say, in order to get incremental improvements beyond that initial upslope in your training, uh, I, I have to go further. I can't just perform in the course of my job. I need to actually tra train. And then you're like, well, how do I train on this? You know, okay, fine. You know, simulator's great. You could train in the whole procedure. But the idea of deliberate practice and breaking these things down to micro skills, you know, for uh, central line placement, placing in uh, a catheter to get the big vessels of our body, there's a set of discrete steps that are incorporated into this procedure as a a flowing whole, but they could be broken down into micro skills and then practiced with like, you know, simple pieces of equipment, just, you know, taking a needle and a wire from the hospital and practicing, you know, a few hundred times that micro skill of detaching the syringe, placing the wire. And that is how we build true mastery. We know this from all these other professions, but how many emergency physicians are actually doing that? How many of them are going back and asking themselves, how do I obtain virtuoso level of performance? I can't do that with the exposures I'm actually getting, the number of reps I'm actually getting on the job. It has to be done by proactively asking yourself, where is the room for improvement? You know, we actually, for my uh, elite performers who I do performance coaching with, I'll actually tell them to develop that same set of skills with their offhand um, and develop the capability of being ambidextrous. Um, it's actually building new pathways in the brain. It's actually building a further understanding of that. And then sometimes you actually need to be able to do that. You're on the wrong side of the patient yeah. and you have to get vascular access with the other hand. And so that capability, you know, people look at me when I'm crazy when I'm talking about that, because it's only a small percentage of people that when, when you say something like that, it dichotomizes people into those that say, you're absolutely crazy. Don't do that. And, oh yeah, that's brilliant. I'm going to start doing that tomorrow. That latter group are going to be the elite performers in resuscitation because they understand you can't just do the showing up on your shifts and stop there and expect to be performing at a master level. 
Why do you think that dichotomizes people? I don't know. I, maybe you've had this same experience, Dan, but there was a time like during my schooling where the idea of being infatuated with a subject was considered to be the mark of, you know, the inferior person. You're not cool. You know, you're not supposed to care. And I've always found, obviously, I'm an obsessive when it comes to this stuff, but, you know, caring at a high level, I always thought was a mark of distinction. Like, I love people like that. That's the people I surround myself with are these people that are just so obsessive about performance, but not in a, you know, in this way that's relaxed. I mean, um, there's a concept called Wu Wei out of China, which is effortless excellence. Um, and it's generally applied to leadership. It's how you're supposed to run a country or an empire. But I think it's applicable at an individual level as well. That's the aspiration, right? To get to the point of excellence, but without effort, without actually having to strive at that point. And what's behind the scene of getting to the level of Wu Wei is an immense amount of striving in yeah. the prep stage, in the in the stage beforehand, you, you have to, to get to that effortless excellence, have worked your butt off. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem like there's enough respect for that outside of the designated fields. Like you're allowed to be obsessive at that level if you want to be an Olympian, if you want to sure. perform on a, you know an elite military team. But that attitude doesn't seem to be rewarded for a lot of medicine, I found. What, what do you think? Do you think that's regarded as, oh, that that's incredible? Or do you think they're like, that person's crazy? You know, I, I think that we have developed a culture that is at both a personal and team level, pretty burnt and bitter, mm. right? Mm. I think we've yes. developed, maybe this is cultural level burnout that we're talking about, right? But it's this idea that like, you know, what is normal is for us to show up on shift together, you to relieve me and be like, how'd the shift go? And me be like, ah, oh, it sucked. I'm going to go home and get out of here. And that for that to be like the expected normal course of things. And I think when that happens, we model that as normal behavior for the people that are coming up. And you know, you think about this sort of hidden curriculum idea. And broadly speaking, a lot of what we're talking about here is would fall under this hidden curriculum because we don't normally teach it the way that we should be. Although I think you and I are, and several others are working on changing that. But, you know, we model this hidden curriculum that what is normal is to be burnt out and frustrated and tired. And that is antithetical to a quest for excellence. I think some of the responsibility for that relies on the people and some relies on, on the culture and the team itself. You know, this is a small example, but I started recently every time I relieve somebody asking my fellow attending some version of what did you get better at today mm. and really expecting them to answer and doing that loudly and in front of residents so that they understand, one, we're not finished products as attendings, two, we're still learning, and three, like we're going to hold each other to this idea of the minimum standard of excellence of getting better tomorrow. And I have gotten a mixed variety of reactions to that. I think most people are really into it. Some people are like, I am going home. Yes. <laughs> no, when, when you said that, uh, first of all, it's a beautiful method and I am going to steal it. I think yeah, it's great. great. But it's also, it does separate out the attendings that have the potential right mindset or not, right? You know, like, and yes, you know, it's perhaps a culture needs to be built. So it's not fair to apply them to that. But if you ask me that question, first of all, I would be so jazzed that we're having yeah. that conversation. <laughs> like it would right? be just, you know, the best thing in the world. It's like, oh my God, this is building the culture I want to see. Mm -hmm. And yet I could see myself asking that question, just getting a blank stare or a stare that I read as 
what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why would you be asking me that question? And I think that it, that truly dichotomizes the group of you're, you're just making me think about so many things right now. Like you, you, <laughs> that, that really is an acid test question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start adopting that. It's deceptively, I mean, like it's relatively easy to try to, right? It costs nothing. And you know, like, like it'd be cool. And I don't know, maybe we can talk about this too, but it'd be cool to develop like a sign out sort of culture or a sign out game or something where you can imagine a deck of cards and each has some question about like, you know, what did you learn or what surprised you or what system would you improve or, you know, whatever like that. And you're just like, that's what you do at the end of the day, right? You're like, how am I going to make tomorrow better than I am today? But at a minimum, that question of what did you learn today? What did you get better at? Because it implies that you should be getting better every shift. And like, honestly, I should be getting better every shift. I really should. And if I'm not, that is, I think, ultimately on me as an individual to fix that that version of it. So, okay, we're starting to pull together some threads here. And some of the threads are, what is your responsibility as an individual? And we're sort of doing this into the auspice of how do we design people that are capable of performing at elite levels under whatever circumstances they find. So some of that is, what is my responsibility in taking care of my own self, right? Getting active in my own rescue, that kind of an idea. Some of this is, how do we do this, right? We do this by envisioning future possibilities and what could go wrong and game planning them. Some of it is learning about the skills that I already have, right? Do I know how to do this thing? And if I don't, am I going to be the type of person that goes out and learns or am I going to be the type of person that is satisfied with not knowing? I'll leave the judgment to that alone for a second, right? But these are some of the threads that we're picking up about that. What other big threads are out there, do you think? Yeah. I guess the first one would be a method I teach called Kahneman cycling. You had mentioned Kahneman in the setting of Premortem with Gary Klein's work on that. But uh, you know what he's best known for is system one and system two. And most of the resuscitative game when you're actually in performance is a system one game. It's a level of expertise. It's heuristic, it's reflexive. And there's certainly times where system two comes online and you should use it to cross-check your heuristic work. But what could be done when you're outside of performance, you know, in your prep stage is what I call Kahneman cycling. And so many of our heuristics are unexamined. They have happened just by our experiential learning, but we don't examine them, but you can externalize them. You can ask yourself, okay, I acted reflexively. Let me actually put it into the uh, space of my conscious awareness and say, is this a good heuristic or not? Like, for instance, you know, the, the quintessential example is if you allow things to just develop heuristically, then you see when you see a patient with flank pain and they come in and they're, they're writhing, you're like, okay, kidney stone. And you'll be right, like, you know, 98% of the time. And then eventually you get burned and you have the patient with the AAA, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Either you've directly had this experience and then I feel really bad for you because it's a horrible experience or you've learned from your colleagues, but sure. it inevitably happens. Then you ask yourself afterwards, okay, well, what was the heuristic that led me to that snap judgment? And you say, okay, well, all patients with flank pain that look like that are kidney stones. Well, then you say that that heuristic is a failed heuristic. What's the better heuristic? Okay, well, young people that look like that are probably kidney stone. Old people that look like that are triple A until I've proven they're not by sticking an ultrasound on their belly. And all of a sudden, now you have a functional heuristic. And I think, you know, that's an easy example, but there's so many things that we do reflexively that are non-examined in the space of evidence or in potential failures. And, you know, they're black swan failures usually where our heuristics fail, but you can actually stave those off before they're happening by 
taking the time to actually examine these heuristics and ask yourself, do they really function or not? Like another one for me, I developed both by experiential, you know, unconscious means, and then actually stuck in front of my conscious awareness and said, is this functional? And then stuck it right back exactly how it was, which is if you come into the ED and you're old with abdominal pain, you're getting a CT scan, right? Mm. And you get pushback. Oh no, the exam's not that impressive. The resident will say, why are you doing a CT scan on this patient? But you've learned both experientially and I think when you examine it based on the evidence that no, that is a good heuristic. Any old person that comes in with abdominal pain, just do the scan. That is a functional heuristic. And it's one that you can develop experientially, but that's often going to lead to a missed mesenteric ischemia or something like that, a horrible disease state that could be discovered. When if you've externalized that and actually examined the heuristics um, that you play by, could be changed before a bad patient outcome has. So that that's another mode of um, work for developing an individual that's performing at the level of mastery. So what you're suggesting is that we make explicit some of the heuristics that we're using and then sit there and look at it and be like, what would a third party say about this? Is this realistic? Is this not? Should we nudge it? That kind of a thing? Exactly right. Exactly mm -hmm. right. And on the decision-making uh, stance, it, it's heuristics. And for the actual physical actions, you know, Mike Loria and I, uh, one of my buddies who you had on your show, uh, we wanted to embrace the concept of emergency action drills. The sure. idea that there could be a reflex response through action. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, what the nidus of this was when you're actually... Um, shooting with a pistol and you have a jam, it doesn't fire, then you have a inbred, if you've had any experience with pistol shooting, you know, um, tap, rack, bang, right? Which is just a emergency action drill that you just do mechanically because you've trained it so hard. So, you, you know, you smash in your magazine, you rack to get rid of a misfired round and then you shoot and it should shoot at that point. And it's just reflexive. And we wanted to build these same things into emergency medicine. So if you have a patient whose blood pressure is 50 over 30, you don't spend any time trying to figure out what's going on. There's right. not enough time in that. That's a, a point where they're going to deteriorate to cardiac arrest You know, within seconds. You don't think about it. The emergency action drill is you break open the code cart and you give half a cc of cardiac epinephrine. All right. You don't take time to mix up the push dose vasopressors that I've you know developed and taught people. It's, it's not enough time. The emergency action drill is crack the code cart, give them half a cc of cardiac epinephrine. And that will in almost every circumstance, we do to a better place to actually have the time to decide what the hell is going on. And I don't care of the source. I don't care if it's the patient's bleeding. I don't care if the base of dilate. It's an emergency action drill we build into people. And so that kind of thing as well. So you could have this on the explicit, uh, making explicit reflex heuristics, and you could actually create reflex arcs of action as well by these emergency action drills. So in both of those regards, you now have someone who's going to be able to Act before they observe and orient to, you know, use the John Boyd OODA loop analogy. And acting before orientation is absolutely key. And then actually building in those components of the OODA loop for the decision-making heuristics and making those explicit is, you know, they're all for me, they feel of a piece. Yeah. I think that's, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the difference, like what is excellence and what is expertise and talking about how it's applying knowledge under a wider variety of circumstances, I think this is a second pillar of that, right? It's the idea that you have developed systems that operate even before you are actually understanding the situation that you're having, right? Because you look at the difference between a experienced provider, you had a chief complaint of anaphylaxis or something, 
right? Or like a uh, allergic reaction. You look at the experienced provider, they go in, they look in the person's mouth, right? They try to see if they're swelling. They don't ask them, oh, what did you eat? Because who the hell cares? It doesn't matter, right? You just go in and decide if you have to intubate them and then you slow back down and do it. And this is a real challenge for teaching that because this is not how we teach in medical school. This is not how we prepare people to start this journey of being an emergency provider, right? We prepare them to be like, oh, I'd like to ask open-ended questions. You know, Mrs. Jones, what are you here for today? Like, okay. And that will work some of the time until it hits the things that it doesn't. And so having these feedback loops baked into you is incredibly important. That's what saves my butt in jujitsu all the time, except for when I'm not there yet. And then it doesn't. I think there's, this is a great time to make a plug for, especially if you are slightly farther along than an absolute beginner in emergency medicine, you should be reading Kahneman and you should be reading Klein and mm. you should read their paper of failure to disagree, right? Yes. Because that paper, probably more than anything else I've ever read, especially as a, a more seasoned provider, we'll call it, is like crucial for thinking about these types of externalized heuristics and being like, where do I think the universe is predictable? Where should I build these loops that short circuit the feedback and, and OODA loops? And where do I think the universe is unpredictable and I should be slowing down and thinking about things differently? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Gary Klein is really, you know, uh, a mentor and and someone who inspired a lot of my thinking on this stuff. And mm -hmm. it it really bothered me when I read Kahneman and Tversky's book because they really upped system two and mm -hmm. gave kind of, I think, short shrift to system one. And it's understandable because most of their experiments were done with college students who didn't have any stakes. Sure. They weren't experts and they they didn't particularly care about the outcome of the things they were being asked. And and that's why they could just, oh, you want the answer? Here it is, the heuristic answer. And the heuristic, the questions they built were designed to fool sure. your heuristic mind. But Gary Klein really spoke about the beauties of system one for experts. And he actually went to experts. He went to the fire grounds and interviewed chiefs to make how they made the decisions. And, you know, recognition prime decision-making really is the applicable uh, rubric for emergency medicine. And I am all about building system one to be potent. And, you know, sure. system one works wonderfully if you bring in a cross-check of system two, if you have reflexive actions that allow rapidity. And then when there's time, just take a yeah. moment and say, let me just think about this for a second. Is there anything anomalous? Is there anything different about this scenario? Is there anything that my gut is, you know, through embodied cognition telling me something's a little bit off here? And doing that cross check takes the potency of both systems because trying to do system two resuscitation, you know, where you're cogitating on every last piece of it, you know, and the classic trope, the, the negative stereotyping we have, which isn't even true, is just like, watch an internal medicine resident resuscitate. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of chin scratching and a lot of thinking about, you know, diverse range of zebra level diagnoses, and they're not going to actually just do what needs to be done. And that's unfair. You know, that's not sure. a true characterization, but you know, that, that the stereotype does hold in some regards is emergency medicine often has to act before you think. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has to be fire ready aim in, in a lot yes. of cases. Yes. Yeah. First off, I think there's a whole space in there where we talk about Klein and his work being how do experts make decisions, but it's also how do experts make decisions in the fields that they're experts in when expertise is possible? Because the, those asterisk conditions are also really important, right? There are things in which you're just never going to be an expert in it just because you don't see it that much. And then you have to start relying on this problem setup. 
well, how do you leverage the experience of others in order to make yourself closer to that? Right. I, I think a really concrete example of this is, you know, most of us over time become experts at doing an abdominal exam. Right. You're able to tell when there's peritonitis. You're able to tell when there's an acute abdomen, but you're probably not going to be an expert at doing abdominal exams on a patient who is wildly immunocompromised and couldn't even mount peritonitis if there was nothing else but evil humors going on in, in their abdomen. Right. And I think understanding when you are likely to not be an expert is a really important piece of this. I think that's challenging to teach. In fact, I think all of this is really challenging to teach. And I wonder in this mindset of developing individuals who are capable of performing at elite levels, how do we teach some of this stuff? It's hard to teach when we don't have as much contact as we should. So I think my resonance get a good piece of this just by watching the way people who have my mindset actually perform. And I think even that more than the lectures I give them really shows them how this functions in the wild. But then you take a group like my fellows in resuscitation where I have a year to really work with them. And then, you know, you have the time each shift sit them down and say, all right, uh, cannulate a patient for ECMO. And I just draw a stick figure on a piece of paper on sticking on the stretcher. And then we could actually find all of the logistical hurdles. And the beauty of it is if you have someone for a year, you'll realize that the process breaks down in certain places, that there's not an optimal way when you do these tabletop exercises. And then you could send them off and say, solve this for us and come back mm -hmm. and present to the group how you could actually make this better. You could fix this process. And then in the act of that, they're doing two things. They're actually developing a solution to a problem, but more importantly, they're learning the steps, the interactions with other people, how to interact with other services, how to actually get a new product brought into the hospital. Sure. And that's what really builds um, the capability of going off and being able to do this at a new place. I think if uh, you force me to, I could bring that back to the resident level and do that on a smaller scale. I am, you know, reluctant to admit though that I probably don't teach the way I'd really want to for the residents because there's just so many and the mm -hmm. contact time is 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 not frequent enough. I mean, it's why I think resuscitation, which we've traditionally rolled into emergency medicine, it's just it's just a piece of what we do. As things have gotten more and more complex, I think it is going to become its own thing and then people will have the opportunity to get that level of training. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I am not trained on how to set up ECMO in a person, right? And I'm a fully functioning, most of the time, ER doctor, right? Like usually at a very high level, but that's not a skill set that I have in my wheelhouse. And I think that's, you know, you're starting to see some of that divergence of skill and divergence of training. Absolutely. And the last half of this sort of joint episode here, we were talking about the advantages of intact teams over swarm teams and mm. vice versa. And I think you just highlighted one of them, which is when you have repeated moments of training together, you can teach people over time things that it's really hard to teach on a one-off situation. And yes, that thought absolutely. process, that metacognition is really challenging to teach in individual timeframes. I also think we're running into this thing that you're sort of hitting on, which is this idea of, I guess what I would call like yo-yo culture, right? Which is like, okay, well, there's multiple attendings in a group. Scott and Dan really believe in individual and team level performance. We train that. We think that's incredibly important and maybe even as important, not to put words in your mouth, but maybe even as important as some of the actual medicine, 
in order to actually make it happen. But then you also get, you know, like Catherine who comes in and I don't, I don't know any ER doctors named Catherine, so I'm not picking on anybody in particular. Catherine comes in and Catherine goes, no, that's nonsense. What Dan and Scott just taught you, that's total nonsense. No, the only thing that matters is like, you know, reading the papers and doing this kind of thing. And like, you're going to do that or I'm going to yell at you. And so now you have this yo-yo effect where like the culture changes moment to moment over the shift. And that's a really big hurdle to get through when you're talking about changing the ways that individuals practice. What do you do with it? Yeah. No, you've spoken to something near and dear to my heart because let's take the lens of emergency medicine airway management. And at some point, you know, at my previous job, I went to our chair and said, I want to make things better because the first pass success rate was in the 85% range. Now, in some things you say, oh, well, 85% is pretty good. The mark of a good emergency medicine program in 2023 is you should be 95% or above. That's your line for achieving, you know, bare level excellence. I think you could go beyond that, but I think 95% is a reasonable thing to shoot to. And what you quickly realize is that the culture of the place will be a stumbling block. You have evidence. It'll tell you things like you should be using video laryngoscopy and, and a bougie, a device that helps us place the tube in that most places have, but don't use and they don't train on. And if you don't train on it, you're not good with it. So then it doesn't work sure. and you it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when I started taking over that program, we actually had to start tracking the individual rates of each of the players, of residents and attendings, and show them if you do it the way the evidence says and the way, you know, Catherine does, you know, let's say Catherine's a good person in this regard, you're going to be well over 95%. You are performing at 88%. And they're like, oh, 88% is pretty good. That's almost nine out of 10. And then you, you give them the analogy of the difference between a horrible driver and a good driver is the horrible driver has an accident every five years and the good driver has an accident every 10 years. That timescape is so broad that Anyone who hasn't had an accident for five years is going to think they're an excellent driver, right? Sure. They, sure. But no, you're by the insurance actuary charts, you are a horrible driver if you have an accident every five years. Same thing. If you're performing at 88%, you're not great at emergency medicine airway management. And then, you know, so if you have someone that's not doing the stuff that you think is right and they're performing at 99%, you got to say, okay, well, maybe I, I don't have the nidus. But that doesn't happen. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Every single person that wasn't doing the things we deemed to be excellent techniques and had the evidence for, we're not performing at the same level. So, you know, being able to show actual performance data Mm. is a a game changer. And then integrating the entire team. You know, we actually had our nurses running our checklist and being the arbiters of uh, stopping people from going to the fourth attempt. They actually were empowered to say, you are not allowed to do that. So yeah, it's just a whole host of things that is an insane amount of work. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's the other thing that people don't totally. get is if you want to have these totally. incremental improvements, it's not easy like to change no. culture, to eke out, you know, when you're already performing at what's considered an acceptable level to go from acceptable to excellence. It's, you know, it's the Pareto principle in reverse. It's to get that last 20% is going to be, uh, you know, four times the effort of to get that first 80%. And I think people are not willing to embrace that. It also requires the belief that you are a person and a team that goes for excellence. And that that's a thing that I don't know that everybody actually believes because it's hard to believe that. It involves dissatisfaction and struggle and a personal sort of sense of growth and mission that is not pleasant or easy or popular in a lot of ways. But it, it's underneath what I think a lot of what we're talking about here. 
yeah, I was speaking to one of my coaching clients yesterday and he's like, we are in an emergency department where the culture is good enough is good enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, there's nothing more damning to me than that. Like good enough is, it's not even the lowest bar. I think it's below the lowest bar. I don't understand that mindset, Dan. A lot of questions on how to operationalize that, like so many thoughts here. But I want to end the way that I normally end these episodes, which is to give you a chance to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this. And there's a lot of stuff that we've covered that would make for good challenges. So, you know, it it doesn't have to be your only one. But folks that are listening to this, what do you want them to try differently tomorrow? What do you want them to do differently on their next shift? I want them to think very much along the lines of the question you asked during sign out of how could I be a bastion of excellence in my department such that I slowly, but perhaps inexorably change the culture to one that actually is seeking excellence. Amazing. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What a great pleasure, man. Such a good time. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind. Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right, good luck out there.